0: Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 39. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this episode as usual very early in the morning on September 23rd, 2021 in Austin, Texas. The title of this episode, Set Fair for Roanoke Part 1, is a tip of the hat to David Beers Quinn, an Irish historian who devoted his long career to the study of early English settlement in North America. Professor Quinn died in 2002 at age 93, but his book, Set Fair for Roanoke, is one of the premier sources on the three colonies that settled on an island just inside of North Carolina's outer banks in the mid-1580s. The new website, still at thehistoryoftheamericans.com, is getting good reviews so far. I've put up a couple of blog posts that do not launch podcast episodes, and you can read them by going there and clicking on Jack's blog. I'm going to use the blog to post random interesting stuff and to publish corrections of podcast episodes that have already gone live. You'll see a post there called Errata, the road to the Roanoke colonies, for example, which corrects a couple of errors in last week's episode. I haven't yet gone back to write blog posts correcting errors in old episodes that have gone up previously, and I don't know that I ever will, but at least we have a mechanism to clean stuff up going forward with a handy place to go when I have to correct the record. Speaking of last week's episode, if you have not already listened to it, you might enjoy this one more if you do. Of course, when you go to last week's episode, you'll hear me suggest that you listen to a couple of others first. It all ties together. It is late 1583. The Catholic world had rolled out the new Gregorian calendar at the beginning of the year, which jumped 10 days to account for miscalculations in the old Julian calendar. The new calendar was not adopted immediately everywhere, and the English still used the old one. Professional scholars will show various dates during this period with a slash to reflect different dates used in Spanish and English records. For example, Sir Humphrey Gilbert died on September 9-19, 1583, suggesting both September 9 and September nineteenth. the first reflecting the old system and the second the new. Not being a professional scholar or particularly detail-oriented. I'm just going to use the date served up and the source I am relying on. Ten days here or there in the mid-1580s is not really going to make the story any less fun and interesting. So where are we? Sir Walter Raleigh has learned that his older half-brother, Sir Humphrey Gilbert, has stubbornly gone down with the squirrel, almost as if he had a death wish. Raleigh inherits his brother's patent, and he has the advantage of being the current favorite of Elizabeth I. As we wrapped up last week, Raleigh was turning his mansion on the Thames, Durham House, into an incubator for North American colonization, bringing various luminaries into his service. They would focus on the coast of the states of North Carolina and southeastern Virginia and look for a place that had accessible food Reasonably friendly or at least cooperative Indians, and a roadstead suitable for resupply and to support privateers who were raiding Spanish shipping as it moved up the coast before cutting east to the Azores. Spoiler alert, there would be no enduring English colony on that coast until Jamestown in 1607 and thereafter. There might have been, but at every turn the project met with bad luck even though its leadership was reasonably competent. The truth is the area now amounting to the United States had been immensely challenging to settle on either a large or small scale, and would continue to be. Longstanding listeners will remember the litany of Spanish failures in the now 90 years since Columbus. Not counting the Narváez expedition, which was supposed to be heading to Mexico, the Spanish catastrophes included Ponce de Leon in fifteen twenty one near Tampa, Lucas Vasquez de Leon at San Miguel de Guadalupe near today's Hilton Head in fifteen twenty six, Hernando de Soto, charged with building quote three stone fortresses on the Gulf and Atlantic coasts in fifteen thirty nine to fifteen forty two, Coronado in fifteen forty to forty two, and various missions following his entrada. Luis Cancer, again near Tampa, in 1549. de Luna's expedition to Pensacola and, theoretically, the Atlantic coast in 1559. And the slaughter of the Jesuits on the Chesapeake by Don Luis and the Powhatan tribe in 1572. Pedro Menendez had managed to plant surviving settlements at St. Augustine and St. Elena, which is Paris Island near Hilton Head, in 1565, but they depended heavily on resupply. Menendez's other forts along the Florida coast would all be gone by 1569. The French Huguenots at Fort Caroline in 1564 and 65 might have come closer to a self-sustaining operation than any of the foregoing, insofar as they brought women and apparently cultivated good relations with the local Indians. But the Spanish slaughtered the French before they could prove the point. As late as 1600, the sum of European settlement in the territory now constituting the United States would be a few hundred people at St. Augustine and a bunch of shacks surrounded by muddy roads and a handful of monks in New Mexico. Nevertheless, the story of the Roanoke colonies is important because it was the first English settlement to succeed even temporarily. And the strange disappearance of the settlers in the expedition of 1587 is one of the great mysteries of early America. As we shall see, that disappearance was, in all likelihood, the fairly direct consequence of the full on shooting war that broke out between England and Spain in 1587, culminating in the defeat of the famous Spanish Armada in 1588. But we are getting ahead of ourselves. Pulling together all that the English knew about the coast of North America, Raleigh and his team decided that the Outer Banks of North Carolina had good potential for settlement and ought to be studied. Richard Hacklite the Younger, student of all things exploratory, was mindful of the massacre at Fort Caroline. An English colony too close to Florida would court a similar fate. The navigator Simon Fernandez in Raleigh's service recommended the coast of North Carolina, where he had visited back in the day while working for Pedro Menendez, the founder of St. Augustine and butcher of Huguenots. Fernandez was said to be familiar with the waters behind the barrier islands along that coast, and so it was on the advice of that Portuguese navigator and Richard Hacklett that Raleigh settled on North Carolina. James Horn, in his book a Kingdom Strange, the Brief and Tragic History of the Lost Colony of Roanoke, suggests there might have been an additional reason to choose the Outer Banks. Raleigh had come to know Jacques Lemoyne, a Huguenot artist, who was one of the few adult survivors of Fort Caroline. Now almost 20 years later, Le Moyne lived in London near John White and remembered that René Laudnire, the leader at Fort Caroline, had heard from local Indians that gold, silver, and copper could be had in the lower Appalachians, perhaps 200 miles northwest of today's Jacksonville. Raleigh may have imagined that those mines could be reached by going southwest from North Carolina. A site further north might have been safer from Spanish attack, but it would have been that much farther from the rumored gold. By the spring of 1584, Raleigh prepared two ships to reconnoiter the area and bring back information that would firm up the destination for a colony. The names of the ships are lost to us, but one was around 50 tons, and the other was a shallow draft pinnace capable of exploring coastal waters and up rivers and probably 30 to 40 tons. Raleigh put Philip Amatis in command of the larger ship. Amatis was, per horn, a young man from a prominent Plymouth family of gentlemen merchants who had entered Raleigh's service a few months before. Amadis was short and, not saying there is any connection, prone to lose his temper. The older and wiser Arthur Barlow commanded the pinnace. Little is known of Barlow, except that he had a fair amount of experience at sea and was literate, almost to the point of being literary, in Horn's characterization, the journal Barlow kept of the voyage, quote, reveals him to be a sensitive and keen observer of the land and peoples the English discovered. It would also reveal Barlow as an optimist, perhaps too much so, insofar as his report would raise expectations for the fertility of the Outer Banks quite beyond the actual Simon Fernandez was the navigator for the voyage, sailing with Amadas. Horn describes him as a rough-hewn character with a checkered past. Quoting Horn, variously known as Simon Fernando, Ferdinando, or Fernandez, he was born on Terceira in the Azores and trained in Portugal as a pilot. He served the Portuguese and the Spanish before moving to England sometime before 1572 following which he took up plundering ships in the English Channel. After being sent to London in the spring of 1577 to answer charges of piracy, he came to the attention of Sir Francis Walsingham. The Queen's minister had no time for pirates, but considered that Fernandez's knowledge of Spanish-American waters might prove useful, and he arranged his reprieve. Possibly on Walsingham's recommendation, Fernandez entered Sir Humphrey Gilbert's service later in 1577 and sailed with Raleigh on the Falcon the next year. Raleigh had been impressed by the Portuguese mariner and believed Fernandez would be important to the success of his plans to establish a colony in North America. But Fernandez was first and foremost a pirate, not an explorer. Remember that last bit, it would become important a couple of years later. Because you and I are alike. And there will come a moment when you have a chance to show it. To do the right thing. I love those moments. I like to wave at them as they pass by. Finally, the expedition included the artist John White, whom I mentioned last week, and Thomas Harriet, who I unaccountably omitted from the dramatist persona in last week's episode, other than to mention he was on Team Raleigh. Harriet was a mathematician, cosmographer, and naturalist, and artist John White's partner in documenting the flora, fauna, and natives of North Carolina. During the 1580s, he served as Raleigh's primary assistant in planning the English colonies that were about to happen. He taught Raleigh's sea captains to sail the Atlantic Ocean using sophisticated navigational methods not well understood in England at the time. He would go on to learn at least some of the Algonquin language. How he would do that, we are about to see. The two ships left England on April 27, 1584, and followed the long established route, heading quickly south to the Canaries and picking up the westerlies at that point. They arrived at Puerto Rico in the first half of June, took on water and provisions, and rested for a couple of weeks, and then proceeded to the coast of North Carolina. They arrived at the Outer Banks of North Carolina by early July, and after poking along for a hundred miles, found an entrance to Pamlico Sound and dropped anchor about a mile from the island of Hatterask, now Hatteras Island. This they claimed for Elizabeth with the usual pomp and circumstance after which they explored the island. Back then, Hatteras was thickly forested with red cedars, pines, cypress, and sassafras, and replete with deer, rabbits, and tasty birds. Barlow described all of this lavishly in his journal. Here's Barlow's description of Hatteras Island in 1584. This island hath many goodly woods, and full of deer, conies, hares, and fowl, even in the midst of summer, in incredible abundance. The woods are the highest and reddest cedars of the world. Pines, cypress, sassafras, the tree that beareth the rind of black cinnamon, you might have met dogwood, and many other of excellent smell and quality. Today, the Outer Banks apparently do not like this. I've actually never been there myself. According to David Beers Quinn, the barrier islands then were more than a mile wider than they are today, and there are few examples of ancient and tall trees. The scant evidence that Barlow was right are in the ancient roots of long-harvested first-growth timber. Regardless, Quinn writes that, The simple eloquence of Barlow's language, no doubt heightened in places by Raleigh's hand after the explorer's return, did much to sell the idea that this area was a veritable Eden, even if its fragile beauty and its lack of major agricultural resources were in the end to prove deceptive. In some respects, this ideal picture helped to create too favorable an impression of the land in England and may be thought to have contributed to the long-term failure of the 1584-90 to enterprises. There actually would be many causes of that failure. The English did not see any Indians on Hatteras, but it is very likely that Indians saw them. The Spanish had made numerous trips up this coast, including the first failed attempt to return Don Luis, Pacuacuinio, and the subsequent mission farther up the mouth of the Chesapeake. We told that story in episode 30, which is 31 as the website counts. I'm trying to fix that problem. The Spanish on the Atlantic coast, and the strange story of Don Luis, which dropped on July 15th, 2021. So the Indians of the region had seen ships before, and in all likelihood knew to be wary of the men who rode in them. We shall return to a discussion of the various Indian tribes in a bit because their different leaders, attitudes, and alliances would emerge as central to the story of the Roanoke colonies over the next three years. Suffice it to say for the time being that the Indians of nearby Roanoke Island, ruled by a chief named Wingina, exercise some sort of contested dominion over the other tribes in the area when Gina had been recently wounded in a fight with another tribe. So at some point after July 4th, 1584, he dispatched his brother, Grand Gaminio, to call on these strange people whom they had observed traipsing around Hatteras. The Indians were cautious. The first canoe brought three of them, one of whom alighted at the shore at Hatteras at a time when the English were aboard their ships. He hailed the English and apparently friendly Algonquin, so they sent an away team to the beach and invited the Indian on board the ship. There they gave him a hat, a shirt, and wine. That actually sounds just like a tech startup's reception at South by Southwest, whereupon he returned to shore. He shortly returned with the other two emissaries and a boat full of fish that he indicated by signs was to be divided between the two English ships. This having been accomplished, a fleet of canoes with 40 or 50 men appeared, including the imposing figure of Gran Ganimio, seated on a mat and surrounded by guards. Gran Ganimio invited the English to approach, which they did. More gifts were exchanged with ceremonial solemnity and diplomatic relations thereby established. From the Indian perspective, that meant that the two sides could now treat each other as equals. Over the next few days, the Indians would arrive with tanned skins and other objet and trade for English manufactured items, including kettles and dishes and that sort of thing. They wanted knives, hatchets, and axes and such, and offered many skins for them, but the English declined, to which the Indians did not apparently take any offense Some historians think that this indicates they'd traded with Europeans before. Maybe they just didn't take offense. Now let's turn to Quinn's description of the first real socializing between the two peoples. Gran Gaminio paid a social visit a little later and drank wine and ate meat and bread on a board. I, too, find that a nice charcuterie is a crowd pleaser if guests suddenly pop in. A little later, he brought his bashful wife and small children with him, an unusual demonstration of trust. His wife, who was not tall, wore a skin cloak with a fur next to the skin and an apron skirt, a band of shell beads encircled her forehead, her husband also had a number of them, and loops of pearls hung by her ears to her waist. Other women encountered had ornaments of copper hanging from their ears, as did some of the children. Grand Gaminio himself had on his head a broad plate of copper, which he would not allow the Englishman to remove. The Indian men and women dressed alike, except that the men scraped the hair from one side of their head. Their color appeared yellowish, and this was probably correct. Sunburn, walnut oil, and the remains of pigment often made it hard to distinguish precise skin color. The hair of all adults was black, but that of some children was reddish. It sort of went on like this for a while, with trading, socializing, and the giving of gifts. At some point, Barlow took seven men in the pinnace's boat and worked his way up to the northern end of Roanoke Island. Now might be a good time to pop open a map app and take in the geography. You will see that Roanoke Island is a reasonably sizable island inside the Sound between the outer banks and the mainland, and thereby sheltered from the ocean. On a rainy afternoon, they came ashore at Gran Gaminio's village, a palisaded outpost with nine longhouses. The fortification reflects the fraught relations between the tribes of the region since there would not have been any reason at that point to build palisades against European incursion. Gran Gaminio was not at home, but his wife, probably not Mrs. Gran Gamimio, though no doubt the Englishman thought of her that way, since nobody bothered to record her name, rushed out to greet them. She and other women of the village gave the English something of a spa treatment stripping off their wet clothes and drying them and rolling out a feast of boiled corn, boiled and roasted venison, boiled and roasted fish, and squash, various roots, fruit. Barlow's effusive description evokes a delightful time for men who had lived aboard a very cramped ship for three months. We were entertained with all love and kindness, and with as much bounty after their manner as they could possibly devise, we found the people most gentle, loving, and faithful, void of all guile and treason, and such as lived after the manner of the golden age. The people only care to defend themselves from the cold in their short winter, and to feed themselves with such meat, meaning food probably, as the company affordeth, Their meat is very well sodden, boiled or stewed, and they make broth very sweet and savory. Their vessels are earthen pots, very large, white, and sweet. Their dishes are wooden platters of sweet timber. Within the place where they feed was their lodging, and within that their idol, which they worship and of which they speak incredible things." Barlow adds other information, some of which would only have been possible after the linguistic barrier began to crumble. The Indians of Roanoke were endlessly amazed by the size of the English ships and the whiteness of their skin. They went to war frequently, or at least had done in recent times, and fought with arrows, fire-hardened wooden swords, and clubs to which they added the horn of a stag. Ouch! They marched to war, singing, and carried their idol into combat, according to Barlow, asking it for counsel, quote, as the Romans were want of the Oracle of Apollo. According to Quinn, we do not have a record of the activities of the rest of the expedition, where Barlow and his men were on Roanoke Island. We do know they picked up two Indians to bring back to England, Monteo and Cheese. We do not know by what means these Indians were recruited. But it may be the case they came voluntarily or at the direction of their own chiefs. Monteo is from the Croatoan tribe, not the Roanoke, down near Hatteras, where his mother ruled over a tribal group still independent of Wingina and his brother. Monteo seems to have developed a genuine fascination with all things English, the mirror image of Barlow's romantic view of the region's Indians, and he would return to England two more times in the coming years. Juan Chis, one of Wingina's subjects, was much more skeptical. Quinn speculates that Gran Ganimio might have sent Juan Chis back to learn about the English and to assess the threat that they might pose, or maybe the English just kidnapped him. Barlow's account, otherwise rich with detail, does not say either way, and neither does any other surviving document, so we simply do not know. In any case, after about a month, Barlow, Harriet, White, and the Pinnace sailed back to England, arriving there safely by mid-September. Along the way, Harriet, who had quite an ear for languages, began to learn Algonquin, and the two Indians picked up some rudimentary English. Harriet would go on to develop a sort of proto-alphabet that would capture Algonquin sounds, but it is not known whether he began that work on the voyage home. For my part, I find it hard to believe that it would be easy to write down much in the extremely cramped conditions of the pinnace. We do not know much about what the larger ship, commanded by Amadas and piloted by Fernandez— Did while Barlow White and Harriet were scouting the region in the pinnace and sailing home. The larger ship would not have been able to navigate the inland waterway and probably would have explored the coast from the ocean side. The English record is all but non existent, so the main evidence is a deposition taken by the meticulous Spanish of one of the members of that crew in 1596, 12 years after the fact. That deponent, an Irishman named Richard Butler, described an encounter with hostile Indians further north along the coast. Quinn argues that Amadas and Fernandez probably sailed up the mouth of the Chesapeake and there encountered the hostile and experienced Powhatan tribe. Attentive listeners will remember that the Powhatans were the tribe of Don Luis, born Paquiquinio, and that they had slaughtered the small settlement of Spanish Jesuits on that coast in 1572. At any rate, after that encounter, where the English may have taken casualties, Amadas and Fernandez, the latter being the inveterate pirate, seemed to have headed east toward Bermuda and then to the Azores in search of Spanish prizes. They were skunked and eventually made it back to England in mid-November. Barlow had already been back there two months, and his enthusiasm for the Outer Banks would have already shaped Raleigh's plans for a colony. Even if he had been inclined, it would have been tough for the grumpy Amadas to overturn Barlow's compelling narrative. Because it will be useful to understand the Roanoke expeditions to come, we'll wrap up this episode with a look at the different tribal groups in the region. Since I cannot improve on a few paragraphs from James Horn's book, I'll roll out a fair use excerpt and suggest in return that you read it if you want to go deeper on Roanoke. Here with Horn, with apologies in advance for my clumsy pronunciation for all those Indian names. Three major peoples inhabited the coastal lands called by the Indians Asamakamak, the Sekotans, we are Pemiacs and the Chiwannos. all were Algonquin-speaking peoples, descended from ancestors who had moved into the mid-Atlantic coastal region from the west and north thousands of years earlier. They were made up of loose groupings of semi-autonomous peoples rather than centralized political entities controlled by powerful rulers. No single people or a paramount chief dominated the entire coastal region. The Chawanaks, ruled by an old and wise chief, Menatonin, were the most numerous and powerful. They lived in towns and villages scattered along the western bank of the Chowan River and along the lower reaches of the Merhuran and Blackwater. The capital, Chawanak, located on a bluff overlooking the Chowan had been inhabited for centuries and was a large settlement of perhaps 2,500 people at the time the English arrived. The Chowannock's influence over the region derived from the fertility of their lands and access to trade routes to the north and west that connected Asamakomuk, that's the regional name, to the broader Mid-Atlantic seaboard. Their role, linking the interior to the coastal lands, sometimes sparked hostilities with equally powerful peoples beyond the region, such as the Tuscaroras to the west and the Powhatans in Virginia. Lands from the eastern bank of the Chowan River to the coast were occupied by the Weapemiaks, who were led by a chief named Okisco. Most of their settlements bordered the lower reaches of the Chowan River and the Northern shore of Albemarle Sound and its tributaries, but their territory extended at least as far as the Great Dismal Swamp, and possibly beyond the area inhabited by the Chesapeakes. Okisko's relationship with the Chowanaks is uncertain, but it is known he was subject to manitonin. The area from Albemarle Sound to the Pamlico River was occupied by the Sucatons. The capital of the same name was located on the northern bank of the Pamlico River and was one of the primary residents of their chief, Wingina. Occasionally, the chief stayed at the fortified town of Pemioic, definitely blew that pronunciation, approximately 40 miles to the east, and at Desamungkepoic. he gads, on the mainland across the river from the island of Roanoke, where his brother, Grand Gaminio, was the ruler. To the south of the Secotan's territory were people independent of and hostile to the three main groups. The Pamlicos, who occupied the peninsula south of the Pamlico River, and the Neuse and Cori of the Neuse River, were Iroquoian, of entirely different linguistic and cultural stock than the Algonquin peoples. The Pamlicos had formed an alliance against the Secotons, perhaps in league with Iroquois who lived in the interior. Altogether, there may have been as many as 7,000 Algonquins and Iroquois living in the coastal region in the late 16th century. osama was an unpredictable place. Shortly before the English arrived, a brief but vicious war between the Secotons and Pamlicos had left Wingina badly wounded. The most powerful people in the West, the Iroquoian Tuscaroras, pressed on the borders of the Chowanocks and the Secotons. Numbering many thousands, the Tuscaroras occupied a huge region inland from the Noose to the Roanoke River. The English referred to them as Mangawaks or Mango Oggs, a name adopted from the Sucatan meaning treacherous or crafty. To the north in Virginia, Wasa Hunnicock, paramount chief of a powerful Algonquin people, the Powhatans, was forging alliances and extending his influence among peoples of the fertile James River Valley and surrounding area. Finally, despite the intercession of priests, Kiwasa flailed the land with a severe drought that withered crops and forced game into the interior. Such was the uncertain world encountered by the English in the summer of 1584. Back to me. In case you missed that last bit, Wahoon Sonnacock was the chief of the Powhatans, and for most Americans, for most of our history, was known simply as Powhatan. He was still chief of his confederacy in 1607, 23 years after this first English voyage of reconnaissance to the region, when John Smith and the rest of the expedition of the Virginia Company would arrive at the mouth of the Chesapeake and establish the first enduring English settlement in North America at Jamestown. This is a good place to stop for today. I am near the end of my busiest stretch, but next week will involve a lot of chasing of the legal tender and such. So we may go with a sidebar episode. I have a couple of topics to discuss and resume the timeline the week after. Not sure yet what I'm going to do, but thank you again for listening. And if you like what you hear, please subscribe to the podcast via the website or your favorite podcatcher so you don't miss an episode. And consider writing a over-the-top, effusive review on Apple. And don't forget to go to the new, almost corporate website at thehistoryoftheamericans.com or our Facebook page, The History of the Americans Podcast.